0: My master's family consisted of two sons, Andrew and Richard, one daughter, Lucretia, and her husband, Captain Thomas Auld. They lived in one house upon the home plantation of Colonel Edward Lloyd. My master was Colonel Lloyd's clerk and superintendent. He was what might be called the overseer of overseers. I spent two years of childhood on this plantation and my old master's family. It was here that I witnessed the bloody transaction recorded in the first chapter and as I received my first impressions of slavery on this plantation, I will give some description of it, and of slavery as it there existed. The plantation is about 12 miles north of Easton in Talbot County, and it is situated on the border of the Miles River. The principal products raised upon it were tobacco, corn, and wheat. These were raised in great abundance, so that with the products of this and the other farms belonging to him, he was able to keep an almost constant employment a large sloop and carrying them to market at Baltimore. This sloop was named Sally Lloyd in honor of one of the colonel's daughters. My master's son-in-law Captain Ald, was master of the vessel. She was otherwise manned by Colonel Lord's own slaves. Their names were Peter, Isaac, Rich, and Jake. These were esteemed very highly by the other slaves and looked upon as the privileged ones of the plantation for it was no small affair in the eyes of the slaves to be allowed to see Baltimore. Colonel Lloyd kept from three to 400 slaves on his home plantation and owned a large number more on the neighboring farms belonging to him. The names of the farms nearest to the home plantation were Ytown and New Design. Wytown was under the overseership of a man named Noah Willis. New Design was under the overseership of a Mr. Townsend. The overseers of these and all the rest of the farms, numbering over 20, received advice and direction from the managers of the home plantation. This was the great business place. It was the seat of government for the whole 20 farms. All disputes among the overseers were settled here. If a slave was convicted of any high misdemeanor, became unmanageable, or evinced a determination to run away, he was brought immediately here, severely whipped and put on board the sloop carried to Baltimore and sold to Austin Woolfolk or some other slave trader as a warning to the slaves remaining. Here too, the slaves of all the other farms received their monthly allowance of food and their yearly clothing. The men and women slaves received as their monthly allowance of food, eight pounds of pork or its equivalent in fish and one bushel of cornmeal. Their yearly clothing consisted of two coarse linen shirts one pair of linen trousers, like the shirts, one jacket, one pair of trousers for the winter, made of coarse Negro cloth, one pair of stockings, and one pair of shoes, the whole of which could not have cost more than $7. The allowance of slave children was given to their mothers or the old women having care of them. The children unable to work in the field had neither shoes, stockings, jackets, nor trousers given to them. Their clothing consisted of two coarse linen shirts per year. When these failed, they went naked until the next allowance day. Children from seven to 10 years old of both sexes, almost naked, might be seen at all seasons of the year. There were no bids given the slaves unless one coarse blanket be considered such, and none but the men and women had these. This, however, is not considered a very great privation they find less difficulty from the one of beds than from the one of time to sleep. For when their day's work in the field is done, the most of them having their washing, mending and cooking to do, and having few or none of the ordinary facilities for doing either of these, very many of their sleeping hours are consumed in preparing for the field the coming day. And when this is done, old and young, male and female, married and single, drop down side by side on one common bed, the cold damp floor each covering himself or herself with the, their miserable blankets. And here they sleep till they are summoned to the field by the driver's horn. At the sound of this, all must rise and be off to the field. There must be no halting. Everyone must be at his or her post and woe betides them who hear not this morning's summons to the field. For if they are not awakened by the sense of hearing, they are by the sense of feeling. No age nor sex finds any favor. Mr. Severe, the overseer, used to stand by the door of the quarter, armed with a large hickory stick and heavy cowskin, ready to whip anyone who was so unfortunate as not to hear or from any other cause was prevented from being ready to start the field at the sound of the horn. Mr. Severe was rightly named. He was a cruel man. I have seen him whip a woman, causing the blood to run half an hour at a time, and this too in the midst of her crying children, pleading for their mother's release. He seemed to take pleasure in manifesting his fiendish barbarity. Added to his cruelty, he was a profane swearer. It was enough to chill the blood and stiffen the hair of an ordinary man to hear him talk. Scarce a sentence escaped him, but that was commenced or concluded by some horrid oath. The field was the place to witness his cruelty and profanity. His presence made it both the field of blood and of blasphemy. From the rising to the going down of the sun, he was cursing ravening cutting and slashing among the slaves of the field in the most frightful manner His career was short. He died very soon after I went to Colonel Lloyd's and he died as he lived uttering it with his dying groans bitter curses and horrid oaths His death was regarded by the slaves as the result of merciful providence Mrs. Sevier's place was filled by a man named Mr. Hopkins He was a very different man he was less cruel, less profane, and made less noise than Mr. Severe. His course was characterized by no extraordinary demonstrations of cruelty. He whipped, but seemed to take no pleasure in it. He was called by the slaves a good overseer. The home plantation of Colonel Lloyd wore the appearance of a country village. All the mechanical operations for all the farms were performed here. The shoemaking and mending the blacksmithing, cart coopering, weaving, and grain grinding were all performed by the slaves on the home plantation. The whole place wore a business-like aspect, very unlike the neighboring farms. The number of houses too conspired to give it advantage over the neighboring farms. It was called by the slaves, the great house farm. Few privileges were esteemed higher by the slaves of the out farms than that of being selected to do errands at the great house farm. It was associated in their minds with greatness, A representative could not be prouder of his election to a seat in an American Congress than a slave on one of the out farms would be of his election to do errands at the great house farm. They regarded it as evidence of great confidence reposed in them by their overseers, and it was on this account, as well as a constant desire to be out of the field from under the driver's lash, that they esteemed it a high privilege, one worth careful living for. He was called the smartest and most trusty fellow who had this honor conferred upon him the most frequently. The competitors for this office sought as diligently to please their overseers as the office seekers in the political parties seek to please and deceive the people. The same traits of character might be seen in Colonel Lloyd's slaves as are seen in the slaves of political parties. The slaves selected to go to the great house farm for the monthly allowance for themselves and their fellow slaves, were peculiarly enthusiastic. While on their way, they would make the dense woods for miles around reverberate with their wild songs, revealing at once the highest joy and the deepest sadness. They would compose and sing as they went along, consulting neither time nor tone. The thought that came up came out, if not in the word, in the sound, and as frequently in the one as in the other. They would sometimes sing the most pathetic sentiment in the most rapturous tone, and the most rapturous rapturous sentiment in the most pathetic tone. Into all their songs they would manage to weave something of the great house farm, especially would they do this when leaving home. They would sing the most exultantly the following words. I am going away to the great house farm, oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, I am going away. This they would sing as a chorus, two words which to many would seem unmeaning jargon but which nevertheless were full of meaning to themselves. I have sometimes thought that the mere hearing of those songs would do more to impress some minds with the horrible character of slavery than the reading of whole volumes of philosophy on the subject could do. I did not, when a slave, understand the deep meaning of those rude and apparently incoherent songs. I was myself within the circle, so that I neither saw nor heard as those without might see and hear. They told a tale of woe, which was then altogether beyond my feeble comprehension. They were tones loud, long, and deep. They breathed the prayer and complaint of souls bowling over with the bitterest anguish. Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God for the deliverance from chains. The hearing of those wild notes always depressed my spirit and filled me with ineffable sadness. I have frequently found myself in tears while hearing them. The mere recurrence to those songs even now afflicts me. And while I'm writing these lines, an expression of feeling has already found its way down my cheek. To those songs I trace my first glimmering conception of the dehumanizing character of slavery, and I can never get rid of that conception. Those songs still follow me to deepen my hatred of slavery and quicken my sympathies for my brethren and bonds. If anyone wishes to be impressed with the soul-killing effects of slavery, let him go to Colonel Lloyd's plantation, and on allowance day, place himself in the deep pine woods, and there let him in silence analyze the sounds that shall pass through the chambers of his soul. And if he is not thus impressed, it will only be because there is no flesh in his abdurate heart. I have often been utterly astonished since I came to the north, to find persons who could speak of the singing among slaves as evidence of their contentment and happiness. It is impossible to conceive of a greater mistake. Slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. The songs of the slave represent the sorrows of his heart and he is relieved by them, only as an aching heart is relieved by his tears. At least such is my experience. I have often sung to drown my sorrow, but seldom to express my happiness. Crying for joy and singing for joy were alike uncommon to me while in the jaws of slavery. The singing of a man cast away upon a desolate island might be as appropriately considered as evidence of contentment and happiness as the singing of a slave. The songs of the one and of the other are prompted by the same emotion.